Welcome, everyone. It's great to see you all. This past week, uh, I read a quote uh, from Nikki Gumbel, who's the creator of the Alpha Course, and uh, let me read it to you. He said this, Purpose in life is far more important than properties or possessions. Having more to live with is no substitute for having more to live for. Having more to live with is no substitute for having more to live for. Or as Jesus said, life doesn't consist in an, an abundance of possessions. And so this morning, I'd like us to really ask ourselves, what are we living for? You know, do you have a, a sense of purpose in life that is greater than material things? Um, a sense of destiny, that you are part of something bigger than yourself, something worth giving yourself to. Um, we've just started a series of messages from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we started last week, and Nehemiah was uh, living a very comfortable life, actually, in, uh, in, uh, as a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And um, there he had a very high position in the king's court, where he would have likely tasted everything before it came before the king. So he was totally trusted, and uh, he lived in the palace, and he would have lacked nothing there. But one day, he found a purpose that was worth giving it all up for. In fact, something he was even willing to risk his life for. He heard the news that uh, the, the city of his forefathers in Jerusalem was still in ruins and the people were living in shame. And it, he was devastated. He mourned and he wept for days, uh, as we heard last week, if you were here. And um, uh, he spent time praying and fasting, confessing to God the sins of his people, that they had brought this state of affairs upon themselves. And yet at the same time, he reminded God of his promises, that if his people returned to him, that he would bring them back once again to the place where his presence dwelt, uh, to the land of blessing. And it was on that basis that Nehemiah then prayed this. From Nehemiah 1 verse 11, he said, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, talking about the king of Persia. He says, Now I was cupbearer to the king, and in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. That was part of his job. So this was four months after Nehemiah had first heard the news. This is now the month of Nisan. And he'd spent, therefore, four months praying before this day. And now, on this day, it seems he was planning on saying something to the king. And so he asks God to give him success. So let's read now what happened next. Okay, we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I said, 
Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, well, what are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that we might know the good hand of our God upon us here this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your Spirit through this text, through this story, and show us, Lord, how this might apply to our lives here today. Help us, we pray, Lord, that we, as we seek to live for you, Lord, and as we seek to know you more and to know your purpose for our lives, I pray, O oh God, that you would speak to our hearts. We ask this for your glory. Amen. Amen. So, it would seem then that during these four months of prayer about this situation in Jerusalem, that God had got hold of Nehemiah. Because he now has this kind of conviction that God was calling him to go and to make a difference in Jerusalem. To, in a sense, be the answer to his own prayers. You know, when we hear of a great need, it often causes a cry in our own hearts, doesn't it? And yet so often, you know, we tend to say, someone ought to do something about that, right? Or someone ought to go and do this, or someone ought to go and do that, right? It's what we call armchair activism. It's uh, pretty popular these days, right? Now, our hearts may cry out because of the need or the injustice that we see around us. But what God is looking for is men and women whose cry, hearts will cry out to him, who will allow him to get hold of them. Uh, so that like Nehemiah, they'll say, Lord, use me, send me. Right? Let me be part of the answer. It was praying that led to a sense of purpose that then gave rise to a plan. Right? Prayer, purpose, plan. There's a progression there. It's only when we've prayed and allow God to begin to grip our hearts with his purpose and then, and then give us some direction, some vision, uh, a plan, as it were, that we can then be confident that we might be successful, that we will know that God is with us. It's why it's so important that we begin with prayer. You know, that when we see a situation, we don't just jump in and try and fix it, but we take it to God, right? We begin with prayer. So what are the things that are concerning you right now? 
What are the things that are weighing on your heart right now? Maybe in your own life or circumstances. Or in someone else's situation. Or maybe in society today or, or in the world around us. What are the things that you find yourself fretting over? Can I encourage you to take it to God in prayer? All right, to allow God to speak to you. Maybe that means he might give you his peace. Or maybe he might stir you to, um, to take an action. Uh, or maybe there's nothing you can do except pray. But as we know, prayer itself is an action, isn't it? It, it accomplishes God's purposes. It's never just prayer, right? Prayer has power to change things. So that might be uh, what God leads you in. But so often as we pray, God may also direct us to take steps to be the answer, as it were, to our own prayers. I'm sure that Nehemiah, who was likely uh, a eunuch, a single man, uh, dedicated to his job as a high court official, comfortable life, I'm sure that he never imagined giving it all up in order to go to what must have seemed like a war zone in Jerusalem to help lead the effort in rebuilding the city of God. And not only that, he was even willing to risk his life to do so. How do we know that? Well, there's a couple of clues here in this story. First of all, did you notice he came before the king with a sad face? Now, I think he deliberately did that to get the king's attention. Because, you see, you had to be invited to speak before you could address the king. And did you notice that Nehemiah was afraid? He was very afraid when the king commented on his sad face. And that's because you weren't allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. Okay, that was a breach of etiquette, which was punishable by death. So no wonder that Nehemiah was afraid. He's taking a huge risk here. And yet he knew that God was with him. He prayed for favor. And thankfully, it resulted in this opportunity to explain what was troubling him. So the king says to him, well, what are you requesting of me, Nehemiah? And notice that Nehemiah then, before he, before he says anything, he prays to God. He says he prayed to the God of heaven. Did you notice that? He sends up a quick prayer arrow. Do you do that? Send up prayer arrows? Right? As you walk through your day, as you're walking with God, and you're encountering situations and dealing with people, that you send up these little prayer requests. Lord, please help me. Give me strength, Lord. Give me wisdom. Lord, give me counsel. Give me guidance. Lord, do you do that? Send up prayer requests, prayer arrows as you're walking with him through the day. The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon once said, be sure that you are with God and then you may be sure that God is with you. One of the ways we can be sure that we're with God is, is as we're consciously walking with him through our day sending up those prayer requests, talking to him. And then Nehemiah makes a very bold request to the king, and again, he's risking the king's displeasure here when he asks him to send him to rebuild the city and to give him these letters of clearance and even give him materials to get the job done. 
What we have to understand is that for the king, this represented a complete reversal of policy. And you can read about that in Ezra chapter 4, the book of Ezra. Because in chapter 4, it tells us that this new king, Artaxerxes, had made an official declaration that all buildings should stop, should cease in the city of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah here is asking him to do a U-turn on his policy. Flip-flop. Not only that, but he wasn't asking him in private. He was asking him in the presence of the queen. Right? So he was putting the king in a very difficult position here because the king risked losing face by granting him his request. No wonder Nehemiah prayed beforehand, right? Help me, Lord. But as we saw, his request was granted because God's hand was upon him. Now, here's the question for us today. Why was Nehemiah risking so much, right? Risking his job, risking his position, even risking his life. He clearly had been gripped by a sense of purpose, a higher calling that he felt was worth giving his life for. But where did that come from? Where did it come from? There's two things I see here that I think we can take home with us today. All right, Two things, and they are connected to each other. And both have to do with understanding the story that we are a part of. Last week, I took some time to look at the backstory leading up to Nehemiah, if you were here. And it was just really a quick overview, starting with the creation of the universe, how things went wrong with mankind, and then God's mission to redeem all things and to bring the nations of the world back into his blessing. We saw how Israel and Nehemiah both had a role to play in this story and how through Christ we too can enter into this amazing story of redemption and restoration that will one day result in a new heavens and a new earth. Praise God. Right? That's the big picture if you want. But it's so important that we know the story that we're in. Right? Without it, we're like pieces of a jigsaw. You ever done the jigsaw puzzle? Each piece of that jigsaw puzzle is unique. It's different from the others. It's got its own little bit of the picture, its own story to tell, as it were. But on its own, it's meaningless. It's useless. It serves no purpose unless you know how it fits with the others. And that's what we need the picture on the box for, don't we? On the jigsaw puzzle box. You need the big picture to see where the piece fits. And if you do jigsaw puzzles, you'll know. You've got to keep referring all the time to the big picture to know how it goes together, right? And that's what really the story of the Bible gives us. It gives us the big picture. It gives us the story that we are a part of because this is where we find our meaning. This is where we find our purpose and our sense of destiny. Right? You don't get that by just uh, preaching a few inspirational verses that have no context. Right? You can have an inspirational verse that you stick on your fridge 
and it may just help you get through the day, but it's never going to change the trajectory of your life. Okay, It's not going to give you a purpose that's worth living for and that actually has power to change the world around you. Nehemiah understood the story that he was in. We see that clearly in chapter 1 in his prayer. He clearly knew God's word. He knew the promises of God. He was quoting them. Maybe he spent those four months studying the scripture. We don't know. But at the end of it, he clearly knew the story. He knew that God had promised to gather his exiled people once again, to bring them back to the land where they would experience his blessing. And in his prayer, he appeals to the God who keeps his covenants of love with his people. And he says to him, they're your people, Lord, whom you redeemed, right, by your mighty power and by your strong hands. Right? He knew this was God's story. And that what God had done before, he would do again. And that's what gave Nehemiah confidence to request the king send him. Because he knew it was God who was writing the script, not the king. This is God's story. And he knew that he was a part of that story. His confidence wasn't in himself, in his own ability. His confidence was in the word of God. Amen? And so in this great drama of history, right, in God's great story, Nehemiah found his destiny, his purpose. He gained a vision for his life that superseded everything else. He was serving the purpose of God in his generation. Now, what about you and I? Right? Are we gripped? Are you gripped by this great story? Right? Is it informing how you live your life? The things that you give yourself to? The things that you're living for? Something infinitely more important than property and possessions? Because this is a story that continues on into eternity. That was the first thing. He knew the story he was in. The second thing I see here is that um, I think Nehemiah also had this sense of purpose because of his heritage, which, of course, is all part of the story. But did you notice he twice refers to the city of my father's graves? Did you see that? The city of my father's graves. It was his ancestors who had helped to build that once glorious city of Jerusalem. And it took all kinds of people and gifts to do it. Craftsmen and artists and builders and engineers, right? And teachers and prophets and priests, all kinds of gifts and people. And this was his family. This was his heritage. And now their graves were among the ruins. But he felt this call to go and join those who had gone before him to rebuild the house of God. And you know what? In Christ... We, you and I, are all part of that same family. Did you know that? We're all part of the same family. They are our spiritual ancestors too. We have a wonderful heritage consisting of great men and women down through the ages. Our spiritual ancestors who have given their lives to see God's house come forth in the earth. Who have lived and even died for what they believed in. And for this great story. Their graves are all over the world today. 
right? But they have joined that great cloud of witnesses in heaven who have gone before us and even now are cheering us on. I think of Polycarp. Polycarp grew up an orphan, but he was discipled by the Apostle John. And he was a pastor and became Bishop of Smyrna. Smyrna is where uh, modern-day Izmir is, the city of Izmir in Turkey, where we have a church. We have a New Frontiers church in Izmir, pastored by by Matt Black, who some of you heard here uh, earlier in the year. And um, Smyrna, uh, a bit like the city today, I guess, they, they, the government there felt threatened, it seems, by the church, the influence that they were having, the numbers who were turning to Christ. So they went after the shepherds. The authorities went after the pastors of the church and they arrested Polycarp. And they said they would execute him unless he reviled Christ. Well, this is what Polycarp said. Quote, 18 and six years have I served Christ and he's never done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? He says, I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among the martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was martyred and the house of God continued to grow. I think of uh, Martin Luther a monk who studied God's word and he found in here a story very different to the one that the Roman Catholic Church was preaching at that time. And he was so passionate to make the truth of God's word known that he risked his life to to make a stand against the unbiblical practices of the church and how they were controlling the narrative. And so he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church and was summoned by the emperor and by the religious council to stand before them where they commanded him to repudiate his writings. And so this is what Martin Luther said, quote, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. And then he had to go into hiding, but continued to teach and to defy the authorities. All about Gladys Aylward. Love Gladys Aylward, right? She was born in a working-class family in London, largely uneducated, and worked as a domestic servant. When she came to faith, she felt God was calling her to serve his mission overseas in China. And so she applied to the mission board. But because of her lack of education, she didn't pass the exams, and so they refused to accept her. And so Gladys says, well, God has called me, so I'm going to go anyway. She spent all her savings, everything she had, on getting a train ticket on the Trans-Siberian Railway, which was a very dangerous journey to get to China. And uh, she got there after some pretty scary uh, moments along the way, and she joined with an older missionary lady, where she started out by... Um, helping to enforce a new law preventing the foot-binding of young girls in China. She then became very influential in advocating for prison reform and caring for orphans, risking her life many times to help uh, those who were in need. 
she actually became quite a revered figure among the people. And when the Japanese invaded the country, she became famous for leading a hundred orphans to safety over the mountains, even though she was wounded herself. Uh, you may have seen the film uh, with Ingrid Bergman playing her role. Wherever she went, whatever she did, she told everyone the stories of the Bible. And she saw many, many converts before she died on foreign soil. Uh, listen to what Gladys Aylward said about herself. Quote, she said, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done in China. I don't know who was. It must have been a man, a well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Aylward, and God said, well, she's willing. <laughs> don't you love that? Of course she was God's first choice. But are you willing? Are you willing to say, Lord, here I am. Send me. Use me, Lord. Use me. Now, I don't want to give the impression that it's just pastors and missionaries who can serve God's purposes because God has used all kinds of people with all kinds of gifts and vocations throughout history to bring glory to his name. They're all woven into his great story. Uh, whether that's craftsmen and tradesmen, Artists and activists, parents and politicians, carers and counselors, you know, medicine and military, engineers and educators and so on. Right? We, we have this amazing rich heritage of spiritual ancestors, many of them unknown, who all played a part in serving God's purpose in their generation. So let me tell you just about one more. Irania Mallory. Anyone heard of Irania Mallory? Dr. Irania Mallory? No. Well, she's part of our family. Right? Irania Mallory, she was a leader in education, in social welfare, in civil rights, and in the African-American church. Perhaps her most important achievement was as an educator. In 1926, she founded what became known as Saints Academy in Lexington, Mississippi. It was, it, it was instrumental and, in fact, pioneered the way in black education. Um, and for many years, actually, was the only accredited high school for blacks in the area and attracted students from all over the United States because of its academic uh, reputation. Starting with just a handful of students in 1926, in her 50 years as president of the school, Mallory educated an estimated 20,000 African-American students. She was also very involved in advocating for health care and welfare services for the sharecroppers in Holmes County where she lived, as well as for black rights and for women's rights at both the national and local levels. In fact, in 1946, she was ranked as one of the 12 most outstanding women in America. It wasn't without difficulty, though. Holmes County was a hotbed for the Ku Klux Klan. But as a devoted Christian, Mallory understood that racism and social injustice have no part to play in God's story. And so she risked her life. She's prepared to risk her life to do something about it. Here's one quote about her. Quote, With faith in God... 
and determination, she changed the face of Holmes County through succeeding in educating the children of impoverished sharecroppers, despite obstacles such as threats of lynching by the KKK. They, they threatened to lynch her, actually, when she hired three white teachers. Mallory gave herself to serve the purpose of God in her lifetime. She probably didn't think about it like that. right? She, you won't find any inspirational quotes by her. She just got on and did what she knew to be right. right? Like Nehemiah, she didn't say, uh, someone needs to go and do something about that. She said, Lord, here I am. Use me. Can you say that this morning? Lord, will you use me? It might be in your workplace, finding God's purpose for you there as his ambassador, you know, uh, being a light to your work colleagues, being an example, praying for them, caring for them, representing God to them, bringing God's presence into your work. Or maybe God's calling you to represent him in society in some way, maybe in the arts, or in medicine, in education, in commerce, or politics, and so on. It, it might be in serving the poor, or the immigrant, or the elderly. That might mean taking a stand where you see falsehood, or injustice, taking some action. It might mean demonstrating God's love by serving your neighbor, or by the way that you serve your spouse or the way you parent your children, or by forgiving someone who has hurt you. Now, I know some of these things don't really seem much to you in comparison to the people I've been quoting, but what I want us to see is that actually they all have a part to play in this great story. And even in the small things, or things that we may think are insignificant, right? they all have a part to play in building the house of God in making Jesus known and seeing his kingdom come on the earth. Because every aspect of our lives, right, our words, our deeds, our work, our families, our relationships, if we're living for the glory of God, it all serves his great purpose. Right? It all gets woven into his story. Which is why the Apostle Paul wrote this in Colossians 3.17. He says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you can thank God for it, and you can do it in the name of Jesus, God will make it count. You can be sure of that. So can I say this? Don't, let's not despise the small things, okay? But let's live with great purpose. Don't despise the small things but live with great purpose. That in Christ, our lives count for something. Now, this was brought home to me in this past week. I'll conclude with this. Um, I went to meet with an elderly man um, called Russ. Lives uh, at Kittery Estates, which is a senior citizen's home over the river there in Kittery. And his son actually comes to our church. But Russ is in the last stages of his life. Uh, he can't walk. Uh, he's confined to a chair or to his bed. He finds it difficult to communicate. Uh, he has to speak very slowly and in short sentences. Um, he and his wife grew up Methodist, 
but his wife was concerned he wasn't doing well. He knows he hasn't got long to live. And she felt that he was struggling with the prospect of dying and wouldn't talk about it. And so I was invited to come and sit and talk with him. So I, I went, and I was glad I did. Uh, I found him to be a very open and delightful uh, man. And we chatted about his life and work. Worked at the shipyard all his life. I think he was a welder uh, there. And uh, we talked about his family. He pointed to a photograph of his great-granddaughter, uh, the pride and joy of the family. We talked about death and life after death. And I think I was able to impart some hope and comfort and read some scriptures to him. But then I asked him, Russ, you know, what is it that you're really worried about? And his eyes just welled up with tears. And he said, it's my family. It was his wife and his family, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. He was concerned for them, for their well-being, for their welfare. You see, he'd always been the provider of the family. He'd always taken care of things. I'm sure he was a very capable man. And here he is, and he can't uh, do anything, really. I mean, he's so severely limited. And now it's them having to care for him. It's a tough place to be in must be such a tough place to be in. As I said to him, you know, it sucks getting old. Thank God for the hope that we have, you know, that God's going to make everything new. And what is going to be restored to us one day will be so much greater than we could ever imagine. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking about this message I'm preaching here this morning. I'm thinking... How's this going to help Russ? Imagine if he was sitting here this morning. What have I got to say to him that's going to help him? How does this apply to him? How can he find purpose? Sitting there, confined to a chair, unable really to do anything much, so severely limited at the end of his life, maybe living with some regrets, Certainly, I'm sure, living with the desire to be able to do more. How could Russ find purpose? And I felt God help me. And I, I said to him, I said, Russ, you know, you may not be able to physically help your family anymore or guide them in their uh, decision-making, but you know what? You can pray. You know, we, why don't we pray for your family right now, I said. Uh, because God knows what your concerns are, and he knows the needs of your family better than anyone. And you know what? We can cry out to him right now, and God's able to do more than we could imagine. And I said to him, Russ, you know what? You are still the patriarch of this family. And you may not be able to physically help them, but you can still have a great influence. Right? You can command a blessing right here from your chair. And you can help shape their lives. And you can leave knowing that the good hand of God is upon your family. That you can entrust them to him until you see them again. So let's pray. And so we did.
prayers that I know even now are being worked out and being woven into God's great story. You know, we can always pray. It's the greatest gift. It really is. Because we know that God is working out his purposes. And the reason why we can be so confident of that is all because of Jesus. It's because of what he has already done for us on the cross through his death and resurrection in dying our death that we might receive his life, eternal life, that we might receive the blessing of God. Right? Jesus is the gateway into this great story. He's the center of it all. He's the reason why we can have this amazing hope. So why don't we come to him right now? Right? Whatever your own concerns are, whatever the things that may be weighing on your hearts today, let's bring it all to Jesus this morning.